Uh, tonight we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 16. Just a piece of housekeeping. As next Sunday is Easter, and I'm anticipating uh, that you all have afternoon and evening plans with family, we will not gather next week. Um, but we will return the following week to, Lord willing, finish off Second Kings. Um, and then if, uh, if you're not familiar with our big plan and trajectory, uh, we are moving directly through the Bible, but we're following the uh, Jewish book order. So whereas your Bible after 2 Kings comes 1 and 2 Chronicles, we're actually going to jump right into Isaiah, and we won't return to 1 and 2 Chronicles until we've gone all the way through the major and minor prophets. Um, one of the advantages of doing that is 1 and 2 Chronicles is another look at everything we've studied for the last two months, uh, and so we'll get to be on a little bit of a hiatus, and who doesn't want to study with Isaiah? I'm very excited for that. So... Tonight we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 16. Now I had mentioned last week that we're getting into, um, into a time in Israel's history where many of the prophets uh, that we know by name, because we have books in our Bible named after them, are operating and ministering. Uh, and so we mentioned Amos, we mentioned Hosea, and then we mentioned Isaiah as well. In fact, when we get here to uh, the rule of uh, King Ahaz in chapter 16, this is running parallel to Isaiah chapters 7 through 9. So we pick up here in verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, was king of Judah, or Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, uh, his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So like many of the beginning statements of particular reigns in Israel and Judah, here we're given a statement by our narrator on the quality of his rule. And as always, it's contrasted in Judah with the rule of David. And it's contrasted in Israel uh, with the rule of Jeroboam. And so here, uh, Ahaz did not do as David has done, um, but he's also very quantifiably the worst king so far in the history of Judah. Over and over again, just by way of illustration, we've been reading about good kings in Judah who fell short in only one way, that they did not remove the high places of worship. You see, going all the way back to God's initial plans in the book of Deuteronomy, it lays out that God had intended for there to be one and only one place of worship in Israel. And so um, <clears throat> at great distance and many times a year, all of Israel would travel to Jerusalem for their personal sacrifices, for the fulfillment of vows, and then for the pilgrimage festivals uh, that happened every year. Um, however, we've seen consistently since the days of Solomon, uh, <clears throat> unsanctioned 
places of worship scattered across the area of Judea um, have been in operation. And now we see why that's so problematic. Because Ahaz, under his rule, all of the Judeans begin to um, not just utilize those places for worshiping Yahweh, for worshiping the God of Israel, <coughs> but for, excuse me, for worshiping all the gods of their neighbors. Okay, and so here in practice, Judah becomes polytheistic in its expression, worshiping many gods. In fact, it tells us here that Ahaz himself sacrificed his own son on the altar of a foreign god. Most likely, this is Molech, okay? Molech, <coughs> the god of the Arameans. Um, and, and so child sacrifice was despised in Israel, um, but it was done in dire circumstances by the nation surrounding to grab the attention finally and fully of the God you sought deliverance from. Um, and so at some point in Ahaz's reign, he stoops to even that level and sacrifices his own child. Now this, some, this stuff starts to come to a head here in verse 5. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him, okay? So they surround Ahaz and Jerusalem in particular. You may remember a few, uh, uh, a long while ago in 1 Samuel, we talked about why Jerusalem is an ideal capital in Judea. Geographically, it's built way up on these hills with shallow valleys. And so the advantage in times of war is that you see your enemies come over the next hill very visibly from where you are in the city, and then they have to descend into a deep valley and come up the other side, which is a great disadvantage during war. And so here Ahaz is surrounded but not defeated. Thank you, Richard. Had my last cough drop about two minutes ago. So notice next, uh, verse 6, at that time, Rezin the king of Syria recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Now we've already seen both Israel and Judah in relationship with this king. And it's going to be this king's son and his grandson that end up wiping Israel off the map, okay? But the role that he plays currently uh, is basically like the mob, okay? And so both for Israel's own protection and as the biggest bully on the playground to protect them from others, they've been paying Tiglath-Pileser uh, uh, tribute year after year. Okay, so what happens here is Ahaz is surrounded and somehow he sneaks out a message and basically says, hey, what am I paying you for? As your vassal, come to my defense. However, that's not the whole story. Okay, in the midst of this, before he appeals to Assyria, Isaiah comes to Jerusalem. And to get this story, we have to turn to Isaiah chapter 7.
Notice chapter 7 begins in the same place we just were. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so here, it's not just the Syrian king, but the king of Israel who have gathered together and have uh, Judah surrounded at the gates of Jerusalem. But notice verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Okay, so Isaiah comes and he says, I know their plans, I know their plots. However, what does God say? Verse seven, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. And so Isaiah says, basically, first off, don't be afraid of the king of Israel, because the countdown clock has begun for the destruction and the scattering of Israel. And then second, he says, I also have plans for Rezin, the king of Syria. And he says here, just stand firm, stand still. It's, it's similar to what Moses tells the people when they are stuck between the Red Sea at their backs and an ever approaching, quickly approaching um, Egyptian army in the book of Exodus. When he says, stand still and see the salvation of our God. And then notice in verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, we know here the reason he's saying that is because he just doesn't believe in Jehovah. He's got a whole roster of gods he worships. This is not some sort of religious uh, um, conviction that he's maintaining. I don't want to test the Lord. Uh, he doesn't believe it's here. In fact, he denies, therefore, the request of the prophet. And so Isaiah responds, verse 13. He said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good, for before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay, now right there in the middle, you may recognize a prophecy uh, not, uh, of the, not contemporary with the rule of Ahaz, but one that Matthew's gospel applies to Jesus himself, right? The virgin shall conceive and bear a child. Now, call this a preview for why I'm excited to study Isaiah. But that seems out of place here, doesn't it? 
We, we ask ourselves, okay, how is that assigned to a king who's living hundreds of years before Jesus comes? How is this evidence of what's going to go on? Here's what's really hard to see in the English, okay? Remember that in English, uh, we make a distinction, uh, be t- or we make no distinction between you, singular, and you, plural, okay? And so I can say, uh, hey, I'm talking to you, and select one of you from the audience, but I also am currently talking to you collectively, okay? If you're from the South, you can at least add the all at the end, you all, y'all, right, to get that. But in English, we make no distinction. In both the Greek of the New Testament and the Hebrew of the Old Testament, that distinction is present, but it causes a translation problem, okay? If you have a really good Bible, you'll see that this is true looking at this passage. But here's the point. Here, Isaiah addresses two audiences, okay? He addresses all of Israel, y'all, and he also addresses King Ahaz. And so what we have here is actually two different signs, two different prophecies that are intermingling. Uh, in fact, you go, okay, so, so why is it so confusing then? Understanding that, that those two signs is the only thing that explains all the way back in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, verse Uh, verse 3, notice what God says to Isaiah again. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and share Jashub, your son. Why does Isaiah, it's bring your son to work day? You see, there's two childs, two children in this passage. One is the one to come, born of a virgin, and the other is the little one. So halfway through, Isaiah says, a virgin is going to conceive and bear a child, and before this child knows the difference between right and wrong, these two kingdoms will fall. Now, we'll do the full work when we get back to Isaiah. I just do that so we can understand what's going on here. What we need to know for tonight is Isaiah comes and says, God is going to take care of this. Do nothing. Stand still. If you can't stand firm in faith, if you can't stand firm with God's help, you won't stand firm at all. And that's not what Ahaz does. Ahaz decides to call for help, not to the living God, but to Tiglath. Pilliser, to the king of Assyria, okay? So, back in 2 Kings, verse 7, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Do you notice the significance of those language? Those are the two terms that God uses to identify Israel's relationship with him. Israel, you are my son and my servant. But Ahaz, he reserves that relationship for the king of Assyria, Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So he bribes him here for help, despite the fact that God has promised deliverance. Verse 9, the king of Assyria listened to him The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. Okay, and so as requested, as he was paid to do, he attacks the capital of Syria, wipes it out, deports the people, and kills King Rezin. Verse 10, when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. Okay. So he goes to this, this conquered city. 
And as is the practice, the Assyrian king has set up their own worship center in the heart of their conquered land. Classic ancient empire move, okay? But here, the king of Judah, a descendant of David, sees this new altar and starts to get some creative ideas. And so, he sent to Uriah, the priest, a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah, the priest, built the altar in accordance with all that the king Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah, the priest, made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it, and he burned... uh, He burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of the peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. Okay, two things here. This is not merely a renovation of of the temple, okay? This new altar is in the temple of Jerusalem, but it is dedicated to the gods of Assyria, okay? It's designed uh, in the prescribed way that the Assyrians worship their gods so that their gods will have favor on them, and then he takes the altar to the Lord, the bronze altar that was designed uh, according to the instructions given to Moses, and he moves it off to the side, and then he repurposes it, and so notice what it says, verse 15, And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar burn the morning burnt offerings and the evening grain offerings and the king's burnt offerings and his grain offerings with the burnt offerings of all the people of the land and their grain offerings and the drink offerings and throw all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Okay. In other words, he says, Everybody uses this altar now. We all worship the gods of Assyria. The other one is only used for inquiry, okay? Um, <clears throat> that, in, that means cutting open animals and reading entrails, okay? God is just kicked out of his temple here. That's, that's what happens. He's no longer being worshipped in Jerusalem. We had already read that this is the type of king Ahaz was. Here is how it plays out. And I want you to notice... The priesthood is on board with this. Okay? It's not just Ahaz, but all the leaders of Israel, including the religious leader, the priests, who are all in uh, with this new uh, sectarian worship of the gods of the nations. Notice verse 16, Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basins from them and took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal, okay? And so in Solomon's temple, there were particular decorations. Here he starts to remove pieces of them. He strips them of their bronze. Uh, There was a big laver, a um, a giant wash bin, that looked like a sea, like an ocean with waves carved into it, set on the back of these bronze oxen. And he lifts it up and he takes all of the oxen out and he puts a stone basin beneath it and sets it there. Now it may be that he's literally stripping the temple of its, uh, of its wealthy goods, uh, but he only takes the bronze here. So that doesn't really make sense. More likely here, he's re-altering the temple to Assyrian standards, okay? On top of that, 
verse 18, the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Full honesty, commentators do not know what that means. Okay, We do know that it's been hundreds of years since the Temple of Solomon's been built. We've seen one strong renovation under King Josiah, right? And so somehow this is an additional piece that was added to the temple uh, that we just weren't told about. But what's important here is he adjusts it based on the standards of what will impress the king of Assyria, okay? One suggestion which I find really interesting is that this hallway may have praised uh, the elevation of the kings of Israel and God as their king, and that the decorations that praised the house of David may have been offensive to the king of Assyria, and so it was adjusted. Uh, you know, it was, it was downplayed, covered by curtains, if you will, um, to be less offensive. Um, but either way, what we need to notice is Ahaz, king of Judah, has holistically given over to worshiping the gods of Assyria. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Now, we've been ping-ponging back and forth between Israel, the northern tribes, and Judah, which have been separated all the way, since the, uh, all the way back to the son of Solomon. And so now that we've caught up on Judah's range, uh, reign, we double back and we're going to look at Israel's. Now in chapter 17, verse 1, in the twelfth year of Ahaz, the king we just talked about, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Ella, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings who were before him. Not one king who reigns over Israel all the way back to Jeroboam gets a positive review from our narrator, not one. And so although it says here that uh, Hosea did evil in the sight of the Lord, he also gets the best review, which is a bit of a backhanded compliment. He's still not the worst king, okay? He was better than all the rest, even though he was still evil, okay? Now notice the juxtaposition we have here. We have the worst king of Judah that's ever been and we have, even though he's still evil, the best king that Israel has ever had. And his name, Hosea, which is another version of Joshua or Elisha, basically means God is Savior. Okay. And so we have not reform, not uh, a great king, but we do have progress. We have moral progress in Israel. And if you were here with us last week, we talked about how Israel, king after king, is like a car rushing down a hill with the brakes out, getting closer and closer to terminal velocity with the approaching cliff. Okay? And so Hosea is kind of a breath of fresh air. It's a moment for pause where we go, wait a minute. Is there going to be a reversal here? Is the train going to slow down? Is this going to still the destruction of Israel at all? After all, his name is Hosea. Can God save them one more time? But notice, verse 3, Against him came up Shalman, uh, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. Shalmaneser would be Tiglath-Pilassar's son. Okay? So he takes the throne. And remember, 
We just saw Assyria uh, in the pocket last week of Israel, okay, uh, as the bully that they were paying off. But as soon as the son takes the throne, he goes, why are we taking their money to protect them when we can just take them, okay? And so he starts a new campaign, and he comes up uh, against Israel, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute, okay? So he officially enters into this role of being lesser king, but... The king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he'd done year by year. Okay? So after a while of dealing with this situation, which is economically compromised, right? it means all the wealth of your kingdom is just going out the back door to another king. So he comes up with a plan. He goes, I know. I'll appeal to Egypt to come and help us overthrow the reins. And so instead of sending his money off to Assyria, he sends it to Egypt to ask for help. And not only does uh, uh, Shalmaneser notice the missing tribute, but he also hears about this. And he goes, that's it. You picked the wrong guy, you know, to betray. And so, therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison Then the king of Assyria evaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, he captured Samaria, their capital city, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Hala and on the Haber, the river of Gozan, in the city of the Medes. What's fascinating here is Hosea is basically too little too late. Okay. It's not one final evil act here that pushes the scales towards judgment. Okay. But even his slight better behavior isn't enough to restrain what's been coming upon Israel. Even though his name is Hosea, it's not the God of salvation we find during his reign, but the promised God of judgment. In fact, we are 200 years from 1 Kings 14 where God has already laid out that this is where everything was headed, okay? And so this is significant, okay? 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel have now been deported from the promised land, relocated to the land of Assyria under the thumb of a foreign power. The land has been destroyed and raided, but that's 200 years after God has warned them that that's where things are headed. In fact, what we get next is an explanation, okay? Uh, What we have in verse 6 is the sentence. But what we have in verses 7 through the rest of the chapter is the evidence. What we have in verse 6 is the symptoms. What we have in the rest of the chapter is the diagnosis, And so notice here, verse 7, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now our author here intentionally takes us back to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments open with God saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's where the covenant begins. That's where Israel's relationship with God begins. That's where the plan was, you shall, and where did the Ten Commandments start? You shall have no other gods before me. But in contrast to that, it says here, 
and he had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations who the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all the towns from the watchtowers to the fortified city, which basically just means from the center of town all the way out uh, into the wilderness. Everywhere they built these. Verse 10, they set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. Those two pieces, the pillars and the ashram, um, those speak specifically of worship practices of the nations that involved uh, sexual worship, okay, cult prostitution and the like. And so these uh, these groves where these temple prostitutes would hang out were all over Israel. Verse 11, there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord said to them, you shall not do this. Notice this, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Notice here, God is not some sort of vindictive or capricious God. He's not unknowable in what his will is or in consequence. And he's not impatient. Here he's laid out the entire covenant. Here's what it looks like to be my people and I will be your God. And even back then, read the tail end of Deuteronomy. Read chapters 27, 28, 29. God lays out where all the consequences are if they do not keep the covenant. Not only that, but he doesn't just warn them once. But with every prophet during every reign over the course of 200 years, he continues to faithfully warn them of where things are headed. But, verse 14, they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Now what fathers are being referred to? That's going all the way back to the wilderness. That's going all the way back to the first generation the covenant was given to. Remember, as the Ten Commandments are being given to Moses on the mountain, Israel has already forsaken God and built for themselves a golden calf and are worshiping it um, with a riotous orgy at the base of the mountain. And then, after the covenant is renewed, after the Ten Commandments are restored that Moses has broken, uh, as they get to the land, they're unwilling to enter in. And they whine and complain in the wilderness about God's provision and God says, you will not enter the rest I've prepared for you. This generation, the first generation, he says, the last generation is exactly the same. You see, one of the things we learn about the history of Israel is that our need for salvation is not circumstantial in nature. Okay? It's not an issue of privilege. It's not just that if uh, in circumstances like mine, with parents like mine, in times like these, what would you expect, God, except for me to not be able to do your will? Israel has every advantage. God is their deliverer. He starts their relationship out of grace. He makes himself known and available to them. 
He summons for them leaders and prophets. He gives them a land flowing with milk and honey. He doesn't ask them to suffer in obedience until a later reward, but blesses them year by year as they follow the Lord. They have every advantage, and yet they still are stubborn. They still rebel against the Lord. The problem of Israel goes deeper than circumstance. And so one of the things we learn from the history of Israel is both that although God's people are faithless and do not keep their side of the problem, uh, their side of the promise, God is always faithful, but also we learn something more is needed. Not just the law, not just reminders, not just every advantage or the promised land to function in, This is why when we get to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they begin to speak of a new thing God's going to do, a new covenant, not like the old one, where God wrote his law law on tablets of stone, but in the new one, God will write his law on our hearts. Not like the old one, where God will work through the ministry of angels to make clear his will, but a new one where God's spirit will come to reside in his people, and they truly will be his people, and God truly will be their God. Even in Isaiah, as we see Ahaz's ministry failing, he points forward to one that is coming that is going to change things, the one born of a virgin who's come to set things right, the true Hosea, the true Jesus, who won't just give us new rules to follow, but will live out a perfect life of obedience and then die substitutionarily in our place for our disobedience and invite us into this new covenant, this new thing. Here in the history of Israel, we learn that the problem is not skin deep. It goes to the very heart. Verse 15, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. Call that homework. Meditate on that sometime this week. They went after false idols and they became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Notice again, this is not they made a single misstep. They wholeheartedly and wholesale bought into everything that was out there. They worshipped everything but God himself. They embraced everything that God said not to do. Therefore, verse 18, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Now, to be fair, our narrator points out, verse 19, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God. Remember, this sacking of Israel happens during the days of Ahaz, okay, who is a wicked king who has also wholeheartedly gone in this way. But, verse 20, um, They walked in the customs that Israel had introduced, verse 20, and the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he'd cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nabat king. This is going all the way back to the beginning. 
and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord, and he made them commit a great sin. Notice here, it doesn't just look at the ending of this journey, but it goes to the very beginning. What was the first step? It's that one in chapter 14, 200 years ago. That's where this all began. Okay. Our narrator lays significant weight on this first generation and the leadership of this first king, Jeroboam, and the consequence that follows all of those generations, year by year, individual by individual, are responsible for, but it begins with Jeroboam. Our present significantly shapes the future, and leadership significantly shapes the state of a nation or an organization or what have you, and our author recognizes that tonight, that it began with Jeroboam, verse 22, the people walked, uh, of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did, they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. Notice that phrase, they did not depart from them, okay? When we talk about the fact that um, the weight, the problem begins with Jeroboam, that doesn't mean that God punishes the children for the sins of the father, unless the children continue to walk in the sins of the father, right? Israel's problem is that they were unwilling, even though all of the curses that are laid out in Deuteronomy were to be front row evidence, living warnings of what was coming, they don't turn around. In fact, they become more and more aggressive uh, in their sin. Verse 23, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he'd spoken by all his servants, the prophets, so Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Remember again, First and Second Kings are written to an audience that are already living out of the land. And it says, let's talk about how we got here. And so he says to his own audience, this is where we are today, and here's why. Verse 24, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Katha, Ava, Hamath, and Seraphim, and he put them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. Remember how it said it deported the Israelites and put them in other places? This was a standard Assyrian tactic to stop uprisings of people they conquered. They would deport them, and resettle them in places that weren't their own, okay? And <clears throat> so they would basically denationalize the nations that were under them by scattering them to the winds. And so just as they've done that to, just as uh, Assyria has done that to Israel, so also the people of these places and nations are resettled into the land of Israel, okay? But notice something they did not expect. And so here... They took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities, verse 25, and at the beginning of dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Why? Because they don't know the Lord, right? These are other people from other places, Babylonians, for example, that have been conquered by the Assyrians and deported here. But now they live in the land of Israel. They do not know the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you've carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the laws of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them and behold, they're killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. In the ancient Near East, this Middle East area that the Bible takes place in, polytheism was geographic in nature. Okay? And so your gods were the gods of this mountain or of this valley or of this nation. 
And so when they look at what's happening, a surprisingly high amount of lion attacks, they associate associate to being theological in nature and they go, oh, well, that makes sense. They're living in the land of a God they do not know. Okay. Now, the Bible has reiterated over and over again that God's power is not limited to the land of Israel. He's not one among many gods. But these kings don't know any better. They do recognize that they have a problem on their hands and so they look for significantly theological solutions. Here's what they do, verse 27. The king of Assyria commanded... Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there to teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Okay? And so a Jewish priest of the people of Israel comes and instructs these deported individuals from Babylon and other places what it looks like to obey the God of the Bible. Okay? Now, <clears throat> once again... This is a polytheistic king's campaign to help a polytheistic people to live in this land. And so they do begin to worship the God of Israel, but not him alone. Okay? Monotheism is not an idea that exists in their brains. However, the reason why this is of significant note is because when we get to the Samaritans in the New Testament, Remember when Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan or when Jesus in John chapter four is passing through Samaria and he talks to the woman at the well? This is where those people group begin. This is why the Jews have such hesitancy with the Samaritans because they're Jewish half-breeds, okay? They also interbreed with the Jews when they're resettled in Israel, okay? And so they don't have the blood purity that Israel was supposed to have, but they also have... Um, a, uh, a half-Jewish belief system. Okay? So, for example, they only believe in the books of Moses. Because remember, 2 Kings, it's being written right now while these people are being redistributed. So they only have the scriptures of Israel's past. Uh, and because of that, uh, and the fact that they're in Samaria, the capital of the northern tribes... They don't have Jerusalem and worshiping at the temple either. You remember what the woman from Samaria asked Jesus? Our fathers worship here in the land of Jacob, right? One of the patriarchs. But your fathers worship in Jerusalem. Okay, do you see how all those things play out here? This is where that people group comes from. In fact, some of the, um, some of the rabbis refer to the Samaritans as the people of the lions, right? Because that's where they come from, this, this significant happening here. But, verse 29, every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibsa and Tartek, and the Sephirvites burned their children to the fire of Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sephirvim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord but also served their own gods after the manner of all the nations from whom they had been carried away. Do you get the subtle irony there? Why does the author spend so much time talking about this? Because Israel was no better. They feared the Lord and the gods of all the nations. Nothing has really changed. Okay? Because Israel has lost what made them unique. 
Verse 34, to this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the laws or the commandments that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with commanded them and said, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourself to them and shall serve them or sacrifice them. Do you see the maneuver he makes there? Without changing who he's talking about, he's clearly talking about Israel again. Okay, But now they're just of the people. Have they lost their national identity? Have they lost their heritage? They're no longer in the land. They no longer fear the Lord. And so <clears throat> our author intermixes them here because of that problem. Verse 36. <clears throat> but Israel, you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power. With outstretched arm, you shall bow yourselves to him. To him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandments that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods and you shall not forget the covenant that I've made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Okay, he's laying it on thick here. Intentionally, this is all stuff we know. Verse 40, however, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Read that word so there as being in the same way. Okay, the comparison here is complete. It's come full circle. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their father did, so they do to this day. I want you to notice at this point in the story how high stake things are. Israel is gone. Only Judah remains, and Judah has been ruled over by its worst and most idolatrous king. The question again is, is this the end for Judah? Was the preview Israel and the feature film is just to follow with Judah? Is that's where we're at? But instead, we find that uh, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, changes everything okay and so chapter 18 verse 1 in the third year of Hosea the son of Ella the king of Israel Hezekiah the son of Ahaz the king of Judah began to reign he was 25 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem his mother's name was Abi the daughter of Zechariah and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father has done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and he called it Nehushtan. So notice, he's the first king who finally gets rid of the high places. Every king since David, we've read, he was a good king. Nevertheless, he did not remove the high places. But Hezekiah, his reforms are holistic to the degree that he takes the bronze serpent from the book of Numbers. You remember the occasion? Israel is in the wilderness doing what they do, complaining. And so God, as an act of judgment, sends serpents with a fiery bite. Okay, probably not fire-breathing serpents, but burning poison of some sort uh, among the people and they're being bit. And so Moses intercedes and he's given instructions to make this bronze serpent and hang it on a pole and anyone who looks to the serpent will be saved. It ends up becoming a significant type of Jesus. And so Jesus in John chapter 3, really close to John 3.16, says, Just as Moses raised up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so also will the Son of Man be raised up. Okay? 
But we find out here that sometime in the history of Israel, they rediscover this and they set it up and they make it an, uh, a, a relic of worship. And Hezekiah, even though it's got ties to Moses and scriptural precedent, he sees it for what it is. In fact, he labels it here Nehushtan, which just means a brass thing. It's just a piece of metal. Okay. He, verse 5, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among them who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. We've seen many reformers in the kings of Judah, but a lot of them in their old age forsake God. That's what happened with Josiah. As soon as he was disconnected from, uh, from Jehoiada, the priest who had kind of tutored him, he went his own way. The same thing that happened to Solomon. He begins right and proper following in David's footstep, but in his old age, all of his foreign wives turn away his heart, but not Hezekiah. He held fast to the Lord. Verse 7, and the Lord was with him. That statement is only made about David, Solomon, and Hezekiah. Okay. The Lord was with him wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He breaks the status quo for both Israel and Judah at this point, and instead of paying tribute, he rebels against him. Verse 8, he struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from the watchtower to the fortified city. So he also <coughs> again conquers the Philistines who have been loose and running wild since the days of David. Verse 9, in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Ella, the king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Assyria and besieged it. Right? That's what we read last chapter. Okay, so during the days that Israel was sacked, verse 10, at the end of three years he took it, and in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah on the harbor, uh, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. Okay. He repeats what we know to set us up for what happens next, okay? And <clears throat> I think this is pretty easy to imagine. You're the king of Assyria. You wipe out Israel. You wipe out the Syrians. You wipe out Aram and Edom and basically everyone around Judea. Judea is the only place left to fall, so guess who's on your hit list, okay? But this falls not to Shalmaneser, but to his son, Shennacherib. And so, verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Shennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king, uh, to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Okay, and so Shennacherib surrounds him. And he basically calls uncle. He goes, don't wipe us out. What's your fee? Okay. But notice here, God intervenes. And so, <clears throat> verse, six, uh, verse 15, Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah 
king of Judah had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan and the Rab Saris and the Rabbishekah with a great army from Lachish to the king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. We're pretty sure those three terms there, the Tartan and the Rabshekah and the third one there, those are probably high-ranking officials in the political realm of Assyria, okay? That's why it has the definite article before him. These aren't these guys' names, but their positions, okay? And so he sends these to him, and they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. Now that's specific, right? Let's just recognize that we don't know where that is. And even though the Judeans who are reading this book probably do, the author takes the time to tell us exactly where this happens. Why? Because this is where Isaiah meets with Ahaz, right? A generation before this, when Ahaz is under the same circumstances, Isaiah comes and he makes an offering to Ahaz and Ahaz rejects it. And so it's while he comes here in verse 18, when he called for the king, there came out to him Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And Rabshekah said to him, say to Hezekiah, okay, now pause. We're going to see this as we read it, but it's a pretty long speech, so I want to say it up front. They're here. They're gathered in this place, and right outside the gates is the mouthpiece of the kingdom of Assyria. And he speaks here for Assyria, and he speaks to the king, but in view of, of all of the public on the walls. And so one of the things he does here is he intentionally speaks in Hebrew, the language of the Jews, not uh, Aramaic, the international language. Okay? Why does he do that? Because everything that follows is a significant piece of psychological warfare. Okay? And he wants the people to hear for themselves. Okay? And so here he's shouting in public ear of the people um, what's about to happen, okay? And so verse, uh, verse 19, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Verse 21, behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Okay, so the first thing he says is, you could appeal to Egypt. He says, but they'll let you down. As we'll see in just a minute, uh, the king of Assyria sees all the wadis of Egypt, which are these, uh, the river delta above the Nile. He sees it as a place where he washes his feet. Okay? Egypt has nothing on Assyria. And so he says, if you try and lean for support, it's just going to pierce right through your hand and you're going to fall to the ground. He continues, though, verse 22. But if you say to, me, say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before the altar in Jerusalem? He says, wait, so you're going to say you trust in the God who Hezekiah has reduced the worship down to a single temple? Okay. Now, obviously, the Assyrians don't understand this, but also he recognizes here that this may not have been a popular move. Doesn't that make sense? The people make a standard practice of worshiping these places, and then the king, by divine decree, wipes them all out. Okay. He's sowing dissension here. He intentionally says, 
So this king who deleted all of this wonderful worship you were doing everywhere for your God, that God is now going to protect you? He continues, uh, verse 23, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to part in your part to set riders on them. He goes, look, I'll even give you a fair fight. I'll provide the chariots if you even have enough men to fill them. He continues, verse 24, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Okay, now, two things. One, we have other Assyrian documents from this time where they say similar things to other, other kingdoms. Okay? It's a classic move for them to come in and say, our gods have sent you, or have sent us to bring judgment upon you. But also, when they talk about this language here, it's pretty clear that the Assyrians are familiar that Isaiah sees the judgment that came upon Israel, the northern tribes, as being just that the judgment of God, that Assyria is their tool, the hand of the Lord, okay? And so he's right here. If you read Isaiah, he's going to tell you the same thing here, but now he's applying it to Judah, and he's saying, I work for your God, okay? Verse 26, Then Elikim, the son of Hilkah, and Shebna of jo- and Joah, said to Rabbishek, Please, speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Okay. And so they basically say, hey, we're educated too. We can speak the international language. We don't want everyone else to hear. But remember, that's intentional. So notice verse 27, Rabbishek said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Okay. He says, oh, this is intentional. I want everyone to know what's about to happen. Verse 28. And then Rabbi stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, in Hebrew again. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and the city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, which is a lot better than eating his own feces, right? Do you see the contrast? He says, make peace with me and we'll take care of you. Remember, what was Assyria's policy? Not destruction, but deportation and relocation. Okay, that's what he's talking about here. He says, each of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, which is better than his urine, right? Until I come and take away the land, uh, take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hands of the kings of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim and Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Okay. Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Right there, the king of Assyria crosses a significant line. Okay. 
There's a major difference from rightly recognizing that he is a tool of judgment in the instrument of God and then saying, who is your God to protect you from me? Okay. But, verse 36, the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and toward them the terms, the words of Rabshakeh. Now, a side note, what we're reading about here and the following two chapters or chapter and a half is all recorded almost verbatim for us in the book of Isaiah, somewhere around Isaiah chapter 38, if I remember right. Okay, That makes us think that most likely this record of what happens comes from Isaiah's hand himself. Okay, And so we have it recorded in both places. Chapter 19, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Okay, and so outward signs of mourning, expressions of repentance, and he goes into the temple, he goes in to pray. And, verse 2, he sent Alakim, who was over their household, and Shebna the secretary, the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. Okay, so with Ahaz, his father, Isaiah comes to him, and then he goes, he goes to Assyria, right? He goes for help elsewhere against the king of Syria. But here, when Hezekiah is surrounded by Assyria, he sends for Isaiah, okay? <clears throat> and they explain what's happened. Verse 3, they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. This is an old proverb that basically means this day is as horrible as a mother who has gestated a child for nine months and now can't deliver the baby. It's a time of crisis, okay, where both the mother and the child are at risk. He says that's where things have gotten here. Verse 4, it may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. He hears these blasphemous words of the king of Assyria, and he says, maybe God is listening, and for his own name's sake will defend us against this blasphemy. And so Isaiah is asked to pray for them, and he responds in verse 6. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I'll put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I'll make him fall by the sword in his own land. And so he says, the attack's not going to happen, and he's going to die, and he's going to die in his own land. Verse 8, Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirica, king of Cush. Behold, he sent out fighters against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Okay, now notice what's happening here. Isaiah says, he's going to hear a rumor, and he's going to follow it, and that's going to protect you. And so here he hears about a rumor, another front of the war, and another empire that's rebelling, or excuse me, and another conquered people group that's rebelling, rebelling, and we think, aha, here's it going to be. 
But instead, he sends back to Hezekiah, verse 10, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezpah, the people of Eden, who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Harmath, the king of Arpad, the king of city of Shephervim, the king of Hedda, the king of Iva? Okay, and so he writes in a letter and doubles down. And he says, decision time. Give up or be destroyed. And so he does this in writing in verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Now notice here, Hezekiah has already been given the promise, but now things have gotten higher stakes. And so he takes this letter And he lays it out in the temple before the Lord. And this is what he prays. Verse 15, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heavens and earth. Okay. You're not like the God of the Assyrians. You're the only God, the maker of all things. Verse 16, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Shennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations in the land, and they've cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. He says, God, you know as well as I do that those other nations were destroyed because their gods couldn't save them because their gods aren't real. Verse 19, so now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, the Lord, are God alone. This is a great prayer. He basically says, the king of Assyria has claimed you're one of many. Show him that's not the case. Okay. Remember here, um, Hezekiah's armies are depleted. Israel, his neighbor and family, is, is removed from the land. All he has left is those inside, inside Jerusalem, And so he needs God to move and to work and to keep the word of Isaiah. And so, verse 20, Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayers to me about Shennacherib, the king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging places, its most fruitful forests. I dug wells and I drank foreign waters. I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Verse 25, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruin, while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. 
because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way in which you came. And basically he says, don't you understand that all of your victories are because of my plans and my endeavors? He says, don't you know that every work that you've accomplished is an expression of my power and my sovereignty? And then when he says here he's going to put a hook in their nose and a bit in their mouth, this was what relocation looked like for the Assyrians, okay? To shame the people, they would treat them like animals and they would pierce their noses and run a, a chain from prisoner to prisoner and like a horse, they would put a bit in their mouth and they would march them to their new land. And God says, that's what I have planned for you. Just like you've led these people away, I'm going to do for you and take you back by the way which you came. Verse 29, this shall be a sign for you. This year, you'll eat what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs of the same. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And he says, here's how you know this is going to take the place. He says, you're going to eat what you have left of this year. And you're going to only have that next year. <clears throat> but then in that year, you're going to plant. And in the third year, you will eat from your crop again. Okay, And so, so it's going to be hard times, but it's not an end. And so, verse 30, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and, <clears throat> and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come up before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it by the way that he came, the same way he shall return and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. So he says the siege isn't even going to start. They're surrounded here, but there's been no first shot, okay? And when it talks about um, a siege mound, one of the ways that you overcome a fortified city is you just build dirt right up the wall until you can walk over the wall, okay? He says, none of that is going to come to pass. And he says, verse 34, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, those, uh, these were all dead bodies, okay? So all of the invading army is surrounding and they wake up in the morning and a large majority of them, okay? Almost 200,000 people are dead, okay? Now here's something interesting, okay? The Assyrians, <coughs> do not record this happening, but they do record the siege and no victory, which is super uncommon. And we do know from the ancient Near East that if you wanna learn about the failures of an empire, you have to learn it from their enemies. They never put it in their own records, okay? But even in the historical records that we have outside the Bible, we have this mysterious moment where they have uh, Judah on, on the rungs, right? Uh, they, it's, it's there and then suddenly they leave. And here we're told it's because God divinely interferes and takes care of the army. Verse 36, Then Shennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrak, his god, Adremelech and Shazer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Arat. And Arishadon, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, so just as Isaiah had promised, <coughs> he goes back to his own land, and he dies there at the hand of his own children 
while he's worshiping his own God who cannot save him. Okay. I really don't want to do six chapters when we return next week, so despite how wheezy I am, let's go ahead and finish chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. And so Isaiah gets this sickness. We know that it involves a boil. And he's wondering if he's going to live or die. And before he even gets a chance to inquire, Isaiah comes and basically says, This is the end. God's giving you a couple of weeks to prepare for your own funeral. Get things ready and be prepared to die. <coughs> Verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying. Now, if you read this in Second Chronicles, it's not as favorable to Hezekiah. It says that he turned to the wall and he, um, he crooned. He just begins to kind of weep into the wall. But here we find out that he also prays. Verse 3. Now, O Lord, please remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what's good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. And so God answers his prayer. Isaiah has just given him the message and he's leaving. And before he even gets out of the front yard, God sends him back and answers Hezekiah's prayer and says, I'm going to heal you. <coughs> On the third day, you will go up to the house of the Lord and I'll add 15 years to your life. Okay. Now notice, that's still a warning of death and a pretty clear one, clearer one than probably any of us have here. But it is a significant extension. Okay. He says, I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So what can Hezekiah expect in the next 15 years? God's continuous protection. Okay. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs and let them take it and lay it on the boil that he may recover. Okay. And so this isn't a cake of figs like we read elsewhere to be eaten. It's a poultice. Okay. It's laid upon the wound. And somehow that brings about the recovery. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me and I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? Now, I actually love this. Remember the pattern here. Isaiah goes, Ahaz, who's Hezekiah's father, what sign do you want? And he goes, no way, I don't want any signs. Okay. And then <clears throat> Hezekiah, he's given a sign as he responds, unlike his father. And so now here, he asks for one. Okay. <clears throat> he's not critiqued or criticized for this. It's clearly different than Gideon, who says, give me a sign, and then he goes, give me a different sign, right? Who's just so afraid and so cowardly, God condescends to prove what he's going to do through Gideon. That's not what this is. Hezekiah knows the Lord, and so he asks here for a sign because he knows that God is willing to give one. And so... Verse 9, Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing as he's promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? Okay, so imagine the picture here. They're laying uh, in the throne room or in a back bedroom, and there's a staircase, and their son, 
uh, casting a shadow down this staircase. In fact, some suggest that this may be a, uh, a sundial, okay? That the stairs were built in such a way and in such an angle and with such a, um, I was gonna use the fancy word, but just such an opening, uh, such an aperture, that's the word I wanted to use, um, that the steps would mark the hours of the day as the shadow extended across them, okay? And so he says, what would you like? Would you like the shadow to grow further 10 steps or shrink back 10 steps? <clears throat> and Hezekiah is no fool. He answered, it's an easy thing for a shadow to lengthen 10 steps. He says, it may not happen immediately, but 10 hours from now, that's gonna happen anyways. He says, instead, let the shadow go back 10 steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord and he brought the shadow back 10 steps, which had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. And so God graciously provides this miraculous sign and he fulfills his word and Hezekiah lives for another 15 years. However, two really significant things happen in the next 15 years which are regrettable. Things that wouldn't have happened if Hezekiah hadn't asked for the extension on his life. One of them Notice chapter 21, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. So notice he's born after what we just read, okay? In the last 15 years of Hezekiah's life, he has a son named Manasseh, and Manasseh will be the worst king Judah has ever had. Okay. And then second, notice what happens after this time in verse 12. At, <coughs> at that time, after Hezekiah has been healed, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Now, at this point in history, Babylon is nothing. Okay? Just a foreign people of no significance. Assyria is the big ruling reigning power. Okay? But they send an envoy, and here's why. Okay? Because Babylon has ambitions. They're just a little people now, but they are going to be the next conqueror, and they're going to conquer way further than Assyria ever did. And they won't be uprooted until the Persians take over in the days of Daniel, okay? So why do they send an envoy to the king of Israel in Judah, in Jerusalem? To scope things out, okay? That's the only reason they're here. Hey, we heard you were sick. Can we come in? And so notice verse 13, Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure, his house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. He gives them, you know, the prime treatment. He gives them the guided tour. He takes them into every pantry and every storehouse and every significant thing in his entire kingdom, which shows both the wealth of Judah and the weaknesses, right? And there's no other way to read this except foolishness, okay? There's no sense of protection here. But notice verse 14, Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they've come from a far country, from Babylon. They're just from really far away. They were just in town. Verse 15, he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouse that I did not show them. Then I, <coughs> Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. 
Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and all which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons whom shall be born to you shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's Daniel and his friends, side note. Verse 19, then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Now, when we read that as is, it doesn't put Hezekiah in a good light once again. It makes it sound like he goes, well, I don't really care about the future. At least I'm going to have an easy go. Okay. I think more likely here, he's recognizing that his foolishness, God, is going to mercifully operate in restraint and patience. It's going to be quite a few generations until this actually happens. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but it is foreshadowing and it is forewarning of where things are headed. As much as Hezekiah has been a shining light to the people of Jerusalem, they will follow in the footsteps of their sister Israel. Verse 20, the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and now he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. That refers to Hezekiah's tunnel, which you can still find in the city of David today. It's, <clears throat> it's basically an extension on the tunnel that goes all the way back to the Jebusites building back in the book of Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel, when David conquers Jerusalem and he climbs up through the well. Okay. Hezekiah extended that so that Jerusalem in all of its size still had access to water when it was under siege. It's the reason why he could survive for three years while the Assyrians had him surrounded, right? Okay. And if you go to Israel today, in fact, if you come with me this summer, uh, we will have a chance to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel, which you'll want to bring good footwear for because it is still full of water to this day. Um, that was Hezekiah's doing. And he says, the rest of the works, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. And so again, Israel's been deported by Assyria. Jerusalem still remains and has remained under a good and faithful king, one of the best Judah's ever had. There's been a tremendous reversal religiously, and, uh, and we see for the first time since the days of David, prophets that are respected and heeded and called for and listened to. But it's not the end of the story. It's merely a reprieve in the long history of Israel's unfaithfulness. So that's unfortunately what we'll cover when we gather next week uh, as we find out what happens next. Let's go ahead and pray. Yes, please. Not Easter, but the following week. Father, thank you for your faithfulness and that your word uh, is worth reading and talking about with a raspy voice and an empty lung, Lord. Every breath I have is yours. And we thank you, Lord, for the instruction we find in your word tonight about the long-standing consequence of sin and your long-standing patience and faithfulness. And we pray, Lord, for many more like Hezekiah, for the places where your church um, has played with fire and will be burned, where it has taken on syncretic uh, practices, where it has diluted the message of the gospel and settled for less. Lord, we pray that you would raise up reformers and restorers and revival, Lord. 
And we ask, God, that you would be not just merciful with us, but gracious. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us more than your law. You've given us your son. You've given us your spirit. You've given us the very life uh, and love uh, that is yours, working in us to transform us and to make us new. We pray that you would continue that good work in each of us and in our city here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.